morning to Apostle Church. Thank you so much for this opportunity to be here today to share with you uh, my compassion story. I'm so grateful to God for this opportunity because today you get to hear how God uses people to change the stories of our lives. I was born in Kenya uh, to a large family of initially 10 children who lived in a village in Western Kenya. My parents did not have a source of income. What they did was subsistence farming, uh, which means they grew things on the farm and if nothing grew, then we did not have food. There were periods of time where there was no food, there were periods of time when we had food. Um, my parents never went to school, so they did not see the need to put any of us in school. And to add on to that, they were alcoholics. So many times they would disappear from home, they would go drinking somewhere, and when they came back home, it was all fighting and violence back home. Growing up in such an environment was difficult because most of the days we would wake up and not know what the day would look like. Would we have food that day? Would, uh, where would our parents be that day? But I'm grateful to God because Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. I'm grateful because one day my uncle came home and decided that he was going to help our family by taking one of, my, of us to go live with him in Nairobi. He took me to go live with him in Nairobi, Kenya, and he put me in school, but he could not keep me in school. His reason being that he wanted to take one of us, put them in school, and hopefully one day this child will come back and change this family. I'm grateful to God because he put me in school, but him not being able to keep me in school meant that I would be in school for some time, and then at some point I would have to go back home because there was no money to pay for my schooling. And I really desire to stay in school. I'm grateful because one day, uh, compassion social workers came to our school looking for needy children, and my grade three teacher forwarded my name to them. They came and interviewed my aunt, and they got enrolled into the compassion program. That is when my life began to change. I was not only able to go to school, but I was able to stay in school. Through Compassion International, I got wonderful sponsors, Bob and Colleen Staggs. Bob and Colleen Staggs changed my life in that their sponsorship not only ensured that I stayed in school, but I could also go to the Compassion Project and learn the Word of God. I gave my life to Christ because one of the social workers of the project shared with me the love of Jesus. I'm grateful for Bob and Colleen because they wrote letters to me telling me how much they loved me, how much they were praying for me, and that I could be anything I wanted to be, and that they were there for me. I'm grateful for their sponsorship because through that, I was able to stay in school. I completed my high school and proceeded to the University of Nairobi to pursue a bachelor's degree in physics. From there, I got a scholarship to go to Italy for uh, two years to pursue a postgraduate diploma in physics, and I came to Memphis, Tennessee, in 2011 to pursue a uh, graduate degree, PhD in physics, which by the grace of God, I completed in December of 2015. I'm grateful to God because my sponsors did not just change my life, but they changed my family. I remember praying that God would change the story of our family, that my parents would stop drinking one day. And I'm grateful because through learning the word of God, I was able to ask God to change our family. My parents stopped drinking and started going to church. My family, my husband and I are also currently sponsors with Compassion because I know what it means to be that child on a packet waiting for someone to pick you up and speak hope 
and life to you. I've also started a mentorship program in Kenya for women in physics to encourage them that they can be anything they want to be because we have been through that process and they too can go through it. I'm so grateful to God because the sponsorship did not just change my life. It changed my family and it is changing our community right now. So as I stand here today, I'm just a testimony that when you take the step of faith and sponsor a child with compassion, you are not just changing that child's family life. You're changing that family. You're changing that community. You're changing that country. As I stand here today, I am grateful to God that this is a testimony that indeed God uses people to change the stories of our lives that will not remain the same. Those children on those packets are not going to remain the same because God is going to connect them to sponsors today and they shall be released from poverty in Jesus' name. Thank you so much and God bless you. I uh, had the opportunity um, last night to meet Cecilia. She was here at our Saturday evening service in person and shared her story and she's just an incredible um, example of what she said, how God uses people to change the course, change the life of, of people. And I think in many ways we could all testify to that uh, in varying degrees and in various ways. And I want to, uh, if you weren't here last week, our Serve the World initiative, as you just heard, is, is for compassion. And this is different than what we often do. Oftentimes we'll, we'll present a project or a cause and say, can you give to this? And it's a one-time gift. This, however, is a, a ongoing gift. Um, to sponsor a child for compassion is $38 a month. Um, it stays, at least it has for years and years and years. That has not gone up. It's been $38 a month. That provides for education, nutrition, um, basic supplies, clothing, those sorts of things. And oftentimes, I know if you're anything like me, you look at the world around us and you see all the difficulty and the brokenness and everything that's going on. And you think, what can I do about that? But, but so frequently, it, it comes down to where can I make an investment in an individual's lives? And so if you're sitting out here with us this morning and you're wondering, is this something we can do? I want to invite you following the service to stop by our compassion table. We are trying over the course of these few weeks to sponsor uh, 500 children in Ecuador across all four of our campuses. Um, we're off to a great start, and we still have quite a ways to go, um, but we would love for you to consider, as we talked about in the video last week, making room for one more, um, and we're looking forward to seeing how God's going to use these stories, the future stories that are going to be told, the stories like Cecilia's, um, where a family that she didn't know um, sponsored her, began to write to her, communicate to her, and, and it changed the course of, of her life. And I think it'll change, I think it'll change yours as well. And so uh, be, be praying about this and I'll uh, remind you on the way out this morning to, to stop by our compassion table. Um, let's pray together and we'll open up God's word. Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to be here in community. We thank you for the opportunity to worship Together and now, Jesus, as we come into your word, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds, Holy Spirit, that you would speak and that we would be ready to receive from you this morning. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. 
I am. Um, how how good, how strong is your uh, emoji game? Like strong to very strong, kind of like. I remember when emojis started to become a thing. Like I just I didn't get it at all, right? Like it, people sending these little faces or little symbols or whatever, and I was like, I, like, like we took like in our texting life, we went from like, oh that's funny, to LOL, to be like. I can't type three letters. I have to send one little picture of something. Like, and, and all these symbols like mean something. They're meant to communicate something. And based on your ability to understand what it's communicating is your ability to connect with whatever that person is tending to, to tell you, right? And I'm a bit of like a late bloomer when it comes to these kinds of things. So usually by the time that I am getting up to speed with something is about the same time that that is no longer like the way it's done. Like my kids recently informed me, I don't know if you know this, but the, the laughing emoji is like no longer in vogue. So if something's funny and like, look, Grace is saying right now, she's like, yeah, I wouldn't be caught dead using the laughing emoji. I just figured out how to use the laughing emoji like a year ago. And, and, I, and, and I had no idea about any of this. And I'm sticking with it at this point. I'm just going to wait until it's re-in again. Like, I'm going to plow through. I remember when my kids were learning to drive. They're taking their driver's permit test, right? And part of that test is there's a, a, a bunch of street signs that they have to be able to recognize and acknowledge what they are. And so I was looking over them with my kids and I'm like, oh, that's, that's yield, this is easy, whatever. There's apparently some street signs out there that I think have never been used in the history of street signs. And I'm like looking at these with my kids and I'm like, honestly, I have no idea what that means. I think you'll figure it out. Like as it's like use the context clues that you have while you're driving to kind of like work your way through it. Even like restaurants now, like I, I was at this, trendy sort of restaurant or whatever this was pre-covid and and i went to use a restroom and they had like a trendy way of communicating what was the the men's restroom and what was the women's restroom but i couldn't figure it out <laughs> so i just stood out there and waited for some people to come out and then just kind of like play the odds like, i was like okay this seems like my best chances are here right see the problem with symbols that we use all the time in our culture is the accuracy with which we interpret those symbols. It's our ability to understand what it means and what they're intending to communicate and how we apply that. And so if, if you have spent almost any amount of time in the church, or really if you've spent almost any amount of time around Christians, then you are likely no stranger to the image or the symbol of the cross. Right? It's, it's a symbol that is oftentimes prominent in our, in our places of worship. It's a symbol that's literally plastered on the outside of a building, our building, in an effort to communicate a little bit about who we are, a little bit about what you might expect to find if, if you were to walk through these doors. We wear it around our necks. We print it on t-shirts, and some of us tattoo it on our arms all in an effort to communicate something. But what? What does that symbol mean? Culturally speaking, the cross has become something of uh, an epic, something that, that sort of evokes this sense of good over evil. It's, it's Jesus 
death on the cross kind of has been reduced to this idea of, of he was crucified for speaking truth to power. And so it's, it's used almost as a metaphor for triumph or overcoming impossible odds within the church. We can almost become inoculated to the, the meaning of the cross. It becomes almost so familiar that the symbol really becomes sort of sentimentalized, like it evokes some good feelings, but we can walk in a room like this and, and on the wall can be this symbol of Roman torture, a symbol that was designed to evoke fear and display power in the most brutal and humiliating way possible. And it's become so commonplace that we can walk in and barely even notice it, let alone be, be shocked by it. So what, what's the point? What is, why is it here and what are we supposed to understand? What is, is it supposed to communicate to us? What is it supposed to evoke in us? And are we reading it accurately? Are we understanding it fully? Now, as many of you know, and as we already recognize, today is Palm Sunday. And traditionally, in the liturgical church calendar, today would be the day that we would gather together and we would celebrate and read from Mark chapter 11 when Jesus is ushered into Jerusalem and it's to the shouts of the crowd screaming, Hosanna, 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 as they acknowledge him as, as the king. But we have been working our way through the gospel of Mark chronologically, and it's brought us to the point now where we're really towards the very end of his gospel. The, the portion that is focused on Jesus' death and his suffering. So the central question that, that I want us to consider this morning in our time together is essentially this, is why the cross? Why does, why does the cross matter? What, what is the reason for it and what has it accomplished? Because I think, and, and remember as we've studied Mark's gospel, Mark is, is he's very straightforward. He, he uses an economy of words. And, and I think as he talks about Jesus' death and his resurrection, and he talks about the events surrounding his crucifixion, he does so with a clear objective to answer, for us to understand what the cross means, what the life and the death of Jesus has been about. Now, I want to just, we're going to pick things up about midway through chapter 15, so I'm going to kind of summarize what has transpired over the last several verses. If you remember all the way back in the end of chapter 14, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, He's arrested there, and he's taken off to stand trial by the high priest in, in Mark chapter 15. And in that trial, the high priest says to Jesus, asks him directly, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus responds, I am. Right? At that point, the, the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, in their minds, they have everything that they need. Like Jesus is just, in their reasoning, he is guilty of blasphemy, and that is a capital crime. The problem, however, is that Rome, the Sanhedrin is living under Roman occupation, Judea is living under Roman occupation, and Rome has not given them the power to execute anyone. 
And so they understand, like, in order for them to accomplish the goal of eliminating Jesus and his influence, they need to get him before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Jesus is taken off to, to stand trial before, before Pilate. And frankly, like, Pilate couldn't care less about blasphemy. Like, he, he's not worried about this guy offending their Jewish sensibilities about what they say about God. He, that, that doesn't register with him at all. And so the charge that, that is levied against Jesus in front of Pilate is a charge of sedition. It's this claim that Jesus is calling himself the king of the Jews, that he is a threat to Caesar and, and to his rule and reign. If you read the beginning of Mark chapter 15, Pilate acknowledges, I, I don't see any evidence of, of anything that I need to worry about here. I don't see any evidence of, of his guilt. And so he, he looks for a way out. Pilate um, uses a, a tradition that, that is practiced around Passover where they, Jewish leaders and the people would be allowed to ask for the release of one prisoner. And so he sets up what he thinks is like a no-lose situation. I'm going to give him the options between Barabbas, who has been charged with murder as a part of an actual insurrection against Rome, and I'm going to give him Jesus, who he's looking at and saying, I don't find anything here that there is to really worry about. But much to Pilate's surprise, when he asked the question, who do you want me to release to you, the people respond, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And he asked him the question, then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And the crowd begins to, in unified voice, shout back to him, crucify him. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So despite finding no guilt in Jesus, Pilate essentially gives in to the demands of the people and he sentences Jesus to death. He sentences him to be beaten within an inch of his life, to be led off, to be crucified. He's mocked and he's spit on and he's led off to die in the most brutal and humiliating way. This is where we pick things up now in verse 21 of Mark chapter 15. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. It's interesting here that I think Mark is citing Alexander and Rufus. He's citing his sources. He said, remember, Mark's written about 80, 50, about 20 years after the death of Jesus. And I think he's saying, like, if you, want to, if you want to validate what I'm telling you, go to Cyrene, find Alexander and Rufus. They'll be able to, to tell you what happened there. They brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. So that's like a, um, a, a, um, to dull the pain, to numb the pain. Remember, Jesus is keeping a promise here. And, and when he celebrated Passover with his disciples, he said, I won't drink of this vine until I drink it with you in the kingdom of heaven. So he declines it. Verse 24, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what he should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews, 
And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So essentially they're saying instead of the temple being destroyed, you are the one who is being destroyed. So the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that you may see and believe. Those who were with him, or were crucified with him, also reviled him. Verse 33, And when the sixth hour, so we're, this is about noon now, had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima shabbati, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him in a drink saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. So why, according to Mark's gospel, why the cross? Why did it have to unfold this way? What, what is, why does this hang in our churches and, and is it on outside of our buildings? Why do we wear it around our necks? What is it supposed to mean? I want us to look in these last seven verses that we read together. I want us to just look at three movements that, that unfold here. And the first is the pain of separation. The pain of separation. And verse 34 and at the ninth hour, 3 p.m. in the afternoon, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima shakabaki, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think most of us can evoke the sense or the pain of separation that we feel. If you've ever had one of those moments when you're as a parent or you're babysitting, you're responsible for a kid, you're in some store, that sort of thing, you get distracted for just a moment by the TVs in the front of Costco, right? <laughs> and then you look around you and all of a sudden, like, they're not there. And you're terrified. It, it evokes a sense in you of utter fear. Where are they? Or perhaps you're at the casket of, of somebody that you loved and you're recognizing in that moment even in the with the hope of new life you recognize that there's going to be a gap of time when i'm going to be separated from this person and you're missing their presence and you're grieving and you're mourning that and now imagine for a moment that this presence this relationship has existed for all eternity and not only has it existed for all eternity but it's existed in perfect love and unity and it's this degree of separation that Jesus has experienced. It's this type of relationship that is now severed. It's the source of pain 
that Jesus was facing when he prayed in the garden and was utterly devastated when he said, if there's any way that you can take this cup, the cup of your wrath from me, right? But not my will, but yours be done. In the face of this separation, Jesus quotes from Psalm 22. He cries out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That psalm, Psalm 22, is, is a prophecy. It's, it's forecasting. The psalmist is, is looking forward to what unfolds here in the cross. In fact, let me just read a portion of this and I encourage you at some point in time this week just to spend time in Psalm 22. But the psalmist writes, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax and all my, uh, my heart has turned to wax and it's melted away within me. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Sound familiar? We don't have time in, our, in the context of this sermon to go into all the Old Testament prophecies, all the Psalms and the words from the prophet Isaiah and Amos and, and the other Old Testament prophets that have been pointing to this moment. But what we can recognize in the midst of this as Jesus utters this cry is that this God has planned for this cost of substitutionary atonement from the outset. And when, when I say substitutionary atonement, what I mean by that is a, 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 um, someone taking on the price or the penalty in order to be restored to relationship with God. So atonement was the sense of a price paid for sin. Substitutionary atonement is someone else paying the price for our sin. He was always going to take our place. Sometimes in an effort to soften or make the cross a little more palpable to us, people have wanted to remove it from the work of atonement. So one author who referred to the idea of Jesus' death on the cross as nothing less than cosmic child abuse. See, but in order to do that, in order to land there, we have to either negate or reduce God to something less than, than fully holy, fully pure and perfect in everything that he does. Or we've got to reduce him down from being fully just, one who will rightly punish sin and injustice, which we, we get that, right, externally. We get that when we look at cruelty across the world and we say, if God is just, he's got to do something about this. That can't stand. But when it's here... And me, right, when it's my sin or my rebellion, I'm like, can't he kind of look the other way on this one? So he's either got to not be holy, he's got to not be just, or he can't be fully love. In order to reduce the cross, we have to remove one of those things because the cross becomes the place where a perfect, blameless sacrifice absorbs the guilt and the just penalty for my sin. 
and for yours. And he does so, as he does so, he is separated from this eternal, perfect relationship that he's had with the Father because the Father is holy and he cannot be in the presence of sin. And so Jesus allows himself to be separated from the Father as he dies, pays the price for me. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, I pass on, I, I, for what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 53, as he looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, described him this way. This is Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5. He said, He himself bore our sickness. He he carried our pains. Then in verse 5, it goes on to say he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, or some translations say our transgressions. Punishment for uh, uh, The punishment of our peace was on him, and we're healed by his wounds. Later in that same passage, in that same chapter of Isaiah 53 and verse 10, it just simply says he bore the sins of many. And because he did, because he was willing as a substitute on our behalf, he cries out in loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bears the pain of separation. And it's through his pain, the pain of that separation, that we have the provision of access. This is the second thing that we see here is the provision of access. Look again at verses 37 and 38. It says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from, from top to bottom. The event of the curtain being torn in two is recorded in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All the synoptic gospels record that at the point of Jesus's death the veil in, in the temple was was ripped in half from top to bottom we all know the experience at, at one level or another right of feeling unqualified or being excluded from something not not being given access I uh, uh, several years ago we were um, vacationing with a group of people as a bunch of youth pastors and their wives and we were at this Marriott resort and it was uh, really nice and, and they had all kinds of different like pools and it was just fun time away. And, and, but they had certain areas of the resort that were reserved for like uh, the club members. Like, so if you were like a frequent travel, I don't know how you get this sort of thing, but I don't know if you just pay into it or you, you whatever it is. Like, we were hanging out with a group of people. They were going to this certain spot. And so we're like, oh, cool, we'll, we'll join you. Not to be allowed in, right? Like, you get to the thing, and there's a guy checking, and I'm kind of, well, that's different or whatever. And I'm like, I'm in room, whatever. And he's like, do you have your club card? And I was like, no, I don't have, I don't know what club card. And he's like, you can't, you're not, you're not qualified, right? Like we know that sense, that, 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 that withholding, the idea of something that exists there that we don't have access to. See, the beginning of the Bible, 
the end of the Bible, they both, it begins and ends depicting humanity in the presence of God without limitation, without restriction. In fact, if we read, if we were to go back in Genesis, we would discover that this is, in fact, what we were created for. And we would discover that this is the very thing that was lost when sin and brokenness entered the picture in Genesis chapter 3. The separation in verse 34 that we just looked at is overcoming the separation that began in the garden. God and his holiness cannot be in the presence of humanity's brokenness. So in order to dwell with the family of God, God established the tabernacle with his people and then later the temple. And within the temple, you would know that in the center of the tabernacle or in the center of the temple was the area known as the Holy of Holies, the very dwelling place of God. The Ark of the Covenant was there and it was protected with all sorts of layers. And you knew that, that not just anyone had access to the Holy of Holies. You couldn't just go in there. In fact, no one really did. With the exception of one person, the chief priest, on one day, the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, if, if he followed the exact specifications that God had given him in order to purify himself, on that day, one person could go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice, a sacrifice of atonement on behalf of the people. No one else was qualified. No one else had access until now, until this moment, until Jesus' death, when that veil is torn. Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, if you want like a long form look at this, or an excellent like description of how Jesus is accomplishing this, but I'm just going to read these couple of verses from Hebrews 10 that's describing this. The author of Hebrews writes in verse 11, he says, day after day, Every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, right? They were always temporary. He says in verse 12, but when this priest, referring to Jesus being the great high priest, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Right? This is the author of Hebrews is saying that through this atoning sacrifice of Jesus is that, that the credentials, the, the, the access that we lack is, is the theological word is imputed. It's placed on us. So that we who, who claim his sacrifice, who are being um, sanctified in him, now have access to the very thing that we lacked and the very thing that we were created for. The veil was torn. And yet you, through Jesus, have been given access to dwell in the presence of God. Relational restoration. And I think all of this then is, is captured, it's recognized in 
in a, in a profession of faith. It was recognized in a profession of faith, and it's amazing to watch what unfolds in this passage because there's all sorts of people there, and they're all looking onward, and yet there's only one who recognizes what's unfolding and who's on that cross. I think that oftentimes we can become desensitized to things. We experience this, right? If you do something long enough, it, it no longer sort of affects you. When I was a kid, I grew up in rural Ohio, Eaton, Ohio, and so a lot of my friends lived out on farms, and we would go out there and hang out, and people from church would do little, like, uh, parties or picnics and that sort of stuff out there, and I had a friend who was a, a, his family was a pig farmer, and they raised pigs, and we would go out there, and occasionally when we'd be playing, like, you would go to the, through the barns, and, and the farmers would be there doing what pig farmers do and I saw some things that like I'm not gonna unsee anytime soon like it's like there was births happening there was all kinds of things and like me who was unfamiliar with it was sort of um traumatized right the people that were doing this every day of their lives didn't think a thing about it with one exception unless in, in that given moment, in that given place, something was remarkably different. That's the only thing that breaks through sort of uh, us being desensitized. See, the Roman centurion who's watched countless men die, whether it was on the field of battle or on a Roman cross, he saw something remarkably different. Verse 39, when the centurion who stood facing him saw in this way that he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. The gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, begins this way. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. That title for Jesus, the son of God, that identifier of him, is not seen again until this moment here on the cross when it's recognized and acknowledged by a Roman centurion as he watches Jesus die. A Roman centurion, a Gentile who did not grow up with a concept or an idea of who, the, who Yahweh is or who the Messiah would be, a Gentile who, as far as we know, has had no interactions with Jesus prior to this moment prior to his arrest and his trial. A Gentile who, as he watches not Jesus live, but rather in the way that he dies, sees and understands the fullness of who Jesus is the way no one else has. This is not just another Jewish man dying on a Roman cross. This man is also God. It seems to be evident to this centurion who's face-to-face -face with Jesus as he died, that, that he, nor, nor they, nor the crowds that surround him, that they are not taking the life of Jesus as they had done to countless others, but that Jesus is, in fact, laying himself down. It seemed evident to him on the way that he died that, that he was doing so as a substitute. Whatever concept, whatever he was able to grasp it as some type of atoning sacrifice. And so in the midst of the darkness, of everything that unfolds, he sees Jesus with clarity and he confesses, truly, 
this man was the son of God. So why, according to Mark, why the cross? Jesus went to the cross to endure a penalty that was rightly, rightfully mine to endure. He experienced separation from a holy God as the result of sin. So that we will once again gain access into his presence to be relationally restored when we too confess. Truly, this is the Son of God. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come to worship you in response, Lord, may the meaning and the significance of the, the cross penetrate our hearts. And may we too respond in faith to you. Because of what you have done, because what you have offered on our behalf, we are given access into your presence. May we not take that for granted. May we not become numb to it. But recognize the significance. And to respond in worship and gratitude and obedience to you. May we, like the Roman centurion, look and confess that truly you are the Son of God. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.